Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand a podcast that tries to do something different. A discussion between Jim Power and Chris Johns about the issues of the day, political developments, economics, finance, and anything else that takes our interest. How are we different? We hope our discussions speak for themselves. You are most welcome to our podcast. Chris, as you remember, uh, in February of last year, just before the pandemic, we had a general election in this country. And it was quite extraordinary. Well, not really extraordinary at that stage, but housing really dominated a lot of that election process and certainly was instrumental in delivering the result that was delivered in that election. And notwithstanding the distraction caused by COVID over the last 12 or 13 months, um, it is very clear that housing really is the most important issue that is taxing the majority of people in this country at the moment. Um, this week, we got housing data for March, for example, showing that the onward, upward move in house prices continues. Um, in the year to March, the national average house price increased by 3.7%, prices in Dublin up by 2.5%, and outside of Dublin up by 4.9%. And you might say, well, they are very small annual increases. But I think to put them in context, those increases have occurred in an economic wasteland in many respects caused by COVID-19. So that, that in itself is quite extraordinary because many people would have predicted a year ago that house prices would fall given what COVID-19 was going to result in economically. And also those increases in the last 12 months have to be seen in the context of just how far markets have come back from the low point after the great financial crash. You know, house prices are up 98, 100% in some cases from the lows that were achieved. So the one thing that is really clear in Ireland at the moment is that the next government in this country will be largely determined by housing. I think it is becoming really the biggest issue that is particularly 
affecting a lot of young people and that is driving the political actions of a lot of young people because you know here in Ireland we have this most incredible affinity to house ownership and house buying. The first thing most of us do when we get a job is to try and buy a house um, and probably dates back to the impact of the famine and the importance of property rights um, going, going back a few hundred years. But, you know, the housing thing is really, really a big political issue. And I think over the next three or four years, the fate of the, the current government will be determined by its ability or otherwise to deal with the housing crisis. And um, there's a lot of demonising going on at the moment about the role of institutional investors in the Irish property market. And there is legislation being framed at the moment that will basically seek to punish and discourage those investment funds from involvement in the Irish property market. Um, I'd like to talk a lot more about that a little bit later on in the podcast. But just to get your perspective, Chris, on how you see housing globally and your perspective on what's happening here in Ireland. Housing is one of those very, very complicated problems that we search continuously for simple solutions. People talk about house prices as having one simple cause. It's often the case that everybody has their own favourite simple cause. It's very complicated. The first thing I would say is that you've got to know in Ireland, it's a global phenomenon. Rich countries around the world and some not so rich countries have exactly the same issues that Ireland does. You talked about Irish house price data there coming out recently this week in the UK. We've seen the strongest house price growth for the last five years, which means that we have amazingly strong house price growth during, just like you, the most awful economic scenario that could have been imagined. So something clearly interesting is going on. My own view on this is that housing house prices in the short term can be caused by almost anything. And it's usually a range of factors. It's, it's got obviously got an awful lot to do with both supply and demand factors. We simply don't build enough houses in the places where people want to live. And that has many different causes. Planning regulations would be one of those. Land availability would be another. In Dublin, the fact that you won't build up upwards is another factor. The way in which house building is not a competitive market in some countries is very important whether or not that market is rigged or not by the producers of houses that's just the, you know whether it's the market for widgets or the market for houses you've got to look at competitiveness conditions if you're looking at pricing the action of governments doesn't help schemes that are cooked up almost every year in every budget in many countries not just Ireland but also the UK something called help to buy all of that is designed to achieve the headlines that we're helping young people buy their homes but all in fact that we do is is we drive up house prices so so it's complicated for me the fact that it is a global phenomenon tells me that we should look for common factors across countries not just local factors which can be important but what are the common factors and I think the number one common factor is low interest rates. Um, that means that people can borrow much, much more than they would in the past in order to be able to finance house, house prices. And there is some evidence to support this. The Bank of England produced a study last year that didn't get nearly enough attention, which showed in the UK at least, if you take a long view, the only thing that actually determines house prices in the long run is the level of interest rates. And that yes, in the short term, things like supply and demand factors and all the other things that I've mentioned that go into those two things can move prices around. But the most important thing 
is affordability and low interest rates. And we know how low interest rates are at the moment. And, and that may change, but it doesn't look like it's going to change very rapidly for the foreseeable future. So I, I think it's complicated. And I think that we simplify it at our peril. And unfortunately, I think a lot of these quick fix schemes that governments produce, particularly things like help to buy, but also the mortgage interest relief thing, all of these things act to drive up prices. And what do I mean by the affordability thing? Well, I can remember, Jim, I'm old enough to remember when interest rates, certainly in the UK, I think when when I got my first mortgage, interest rates were in the teens, something like 17% was a mortgage rate I remember having to pay. I remember having to, to go begging to a personal interview with my building society, because in, in those days, banks didn't give mortgages, it was only building societies, you effectively were in a queue for mortgages. So supply of funds for, for people buying houses, people like me, were, were restricted. You were in a queue. And when you did get them, you had to pay an awful lot for them. And as a result, house prices were an awful lot lower than, than they were. That said, when I did get my first mortgage in, in the 20s, I couldn't. there was no way, even despite the fact I had a good job, uh, I could do it on my own. And I had to do it with a mate. It wasn't a, a partner. It, it was it was a, just a friend. And the only way we could we could buy a flat where we were living at the time was to do it together. So the, these problems, A, are global, B, have been around a long time, and C, are very complicated. And I think you have to work very hard to get an understanding of what's going on. And if you are going to solve the problem, if it is solvable, and I frankly doubt this side of a hike in interest rates that it is solvable, you've got to work very hard to understand the multiple factors. Uh, you're reminding me, Chris, I bought my first house when I was 25 and uh, I couldn't afford to buy in Dublin. I bought down in a small town in North Kildare, 15 miles from Dublin. But at the time, I had to, I had a lovely red mini at the time, car now, not an item of clothing, but I had to sell the car uh, because I couldn't afford to run it because of my mortgage. And I ended up cycling in and out of Dublin every day uh, for a couple of years. So people having problems getting a mortgage, affording a house, it's not something new. You know, it's, it's a universal problem. It's been around a long time. But I, I guess at the moment here in Ireland, it has just become such a political hot potato. Um, and as I said, there's a lot of debate going on here at the moment. There is this legislation that's going through the system at the minute that is basically demonizing in investment funds. And it, it is looking for a simple solution and a, a solution that has that is popular amongst the populist politics and politicians that tends to dominate a lot of this debate in the country at the moment. And I, I'll talk about in a second the role of institutional investment in the Irish market in recent years. But I, I to me, um, a lot of it comes down to the supply side. It is estimated in this country that we should be building 35,000 houses on average per year to keep up with the natural demand, particularly given the demographic nature of Ireland, growing young population and so on. So 35,000 would be the sort of typical housing supply requirement that many analysts believe we need in this country. Uh, Ronan Lyons has suggested, for example, in Trinity, it could be as high as 47,000 per year. But that's, it's, it's a difficult one to model. But if you look at where we are, last year we built under 21,000. And between 2011 and 2019, we averaged just over 10,000 new houses per annum. So supply died 
And we now wonder, why have we a problem? We stopped building houses and we're now paying the price for that. Indeed. And my point about affordability and the effect of low interest rates on house prices is is tied to what you're saying, which is it's absolutely true that if you increase the supply of houses, all things being equal, their prices should either fall or not rise by as much as what they would otherwise do. But if you were to build those 45,000 houses a year, the point of this research about the importance of bond yields and interest rates is that you might be astonished by how little effect that you would actually have on house prices. It's complicated. Yeah, yes, it is indeed complicated. Um, what, what has become an item of real controversy in this country is a revelation a couple of weeks ago that a housing development in Maynooth in Kildare, uh, that the bulk of it was bought by a US investment fund. Um, and that has caused consternation. Um, I know the backstory to what happened there. There was an issue uh, between the builder and, and his ability to sell on the houses for social housing and affordable housing, which was the initial intention. So um, he was in a position where he couldn't sell on those houses for social and affordable housing to the council. And as a consequence, he went out and looked for um, an an international investor. Well, sorry, an an investor that would buy the bulk of those houses. So what happened in Maynooth is not typical. It is an aberration. Okay, but the picture is being painted here now that all housing developments are basically being bought up by institutional investment funds. That is wrong. The Department of Finance in 2017 did an extensive study of the role of um, institutional investors in the Irish property market. And at that stage, that was 2017, they found that about 4% of housing developments were owned by institutional investors. In the case of apartments, uh, because of the economics of apartment delivery, um, the figure was closer to 40%. So institutional investors are much more involved in the apartment rather than the housing market per se. And um, and, and I, I actually don't see a problem with that because if you want the delivery of apartments, you do need institutional investors. And I've also always believed actually that to have a professional regulated rental market, you do need institutional investors. And I think Germany would be an example of that. So I just don't buy the argument about the evil of institutional investors. But that is the populist political narrative out there at the moment. And as you know, in many other cases, the populist political narrative very often results in policy. And one of the policies that's been persuaded that has been discussed at the moment or proposed is that there should be a seven and a half percent stamp duty on 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 over a certain amount of properties that they're bought by an investment fund. It's trying to discourage institutional investment in the market. I think that is a ridiculous suggestion. To be honest, I I, I believe that it will seriously damage the ability to deliver particularly the apartment supply that this country requires, but I think the broader housing supply that this country requires. Because the bottom line is, given the dysfunctional nature of the financing of development in this country at the moment, outside institutional investment is required to deliver what needs to be delivered in terms of housing supply. And by changing the 
tax treatment of institutional investors, you are immediately injecting a significant element of uncertainty into the debate. And for investors, external investors in Ireland, which are really important across a broad range of areas, and that's typical, I guess, of a small open economy, um, tax certainty is very important. So if you can turn around at a whim and charge a differential tax to an external investor, I think that sends out all sorts of incorrect signals about Ireland and about certainty and stability. Um, And the final point I would make is that there is an easier way to tackle it, and that is through the planning process. You know, we have a part of our planning process here called PAR5, meaning that a certain percentage of a housing development has to go towards social housing. You could introduce similar regulations for institutional investors. You know, they can buy no more than a certain percentage of a housing development, for example. You can use the planning system, I think, in a much more effective way than using taxation. But as you know, Chris, I think in this country, the answer to everything is just to increase taxes. The way in which housing policy is formulated in many countries, as, as I've suggested, is crazy. You've mentioned planning. The, the planning system is dysfunctional in, in many countries. It's interesting that Boris Johnson in the UK is proposing the way in which people can get cheaper and better housing in parts of the UK is to, is to actually change the planning laws and make it easier to build. I'd actually have a lot of sympathy for that. Planning is far too restrictive. I, for years, for decades, have thought that the Dublin skyline is ridiculous in that it's just too low and all it is encouraged is sprawl in you know north, west and south. If you could have sprawled out into the Irish Sea, if somebody could have figured that one out, that that would have been done as well. The planning process also doesn't do enough, hasn't done enough historically around the infrastructure so that you'll put up a a big office block or a housing estate without the necessary roads, schools, shops, pubs, restaurants. Best example I've got of that is the development, I think it was Sean Dunn, that did around near Merrion Gates a, a good few years ago. And to this day, they're struggling with how you cope with the traffic around that area. And there's been schemes that to try and force purchase, compulsory purchase some of the houses in, the, in that area to widen the roads. This should all be in, been done when that development was put in place and the developer should have been told to either build bridges, widen roads or dig tunnels. Things like that, you know, imaginative use of the, of the planning process. More generally, when it comes to these investment funds, if you're going to build an awful lot of houses or flats, places that people want to live in anywhere, You've got to have the money to do it. We've talked about the Irish banking system and the way that's dysfunctional at the moment. And my sense of the willingness of Irish banks to fund property development, it, well, it, does, it doesn't really exist in any meaningful way, in, in my opinion, or at least in the way that it should be. And you've got to have the, this activity funded. Nobody comes in and builds a house or, a, or an apartment block or any residential scheme with their own money. They always do it with borrowed money. And so where is that money going to come from? If you're not going to have somebody able to borrow money, you've got to have these foreigners come in to do it. And more generally, the more people are coming in with more funds to build more houses creates the solution to your problem. If you stop people coming in and building houses, guess what the result is going to be? You're going to have less of them. So it makes no sense. If you're worried about the behavior of these foreign investors and some of the labels and descriptions that have been placed on them about being rapacious landlords or 
people who will, you know, turf people out of their homes. You have rules and regulations and laws that can deal with that. You can put in security of tenure laws uh, associated with tenancies. Um, You can do all sorts of things. Um, You should, in my opinion, encourage something that I think is, is, is very important, which is that culture that you spoke of about as soon as you're able to get this massive mortgage in your early, mid, late 20s. To me, that's a nonsense. Yeah. Saddling, your, saddling yourself with huge debts. Yeah, it worked when house prices were going up forever, but it may not work quite so well going forward. And somehow or other, that's socially acceptable renting. Um, you talked about Germany, where renting is much more common, much more socially and culturally acceptable. That makes much more sense, particularly when you are young. If you imagined a world where house prices, real house prices never went up, I think people would be less concerned about the renting versus buying decision. And all of these things have to be factored in. But most importantly, you need people who are bringing funds into the housing market for building of housing and rent. So if you're going to tell a a very large group of potential house builders, house purchasers, developers that they're not welcome, where else are you going to get the people and the money to do it? Exactly, Chris. There is a, I think there's a huge tendency in this country, and maybe it's the same everywhere, I suppose in the UK. Well, sorry, the tendency is to blame external agents for all of your problems. And perhaps in the UK, there's an element of that with blaming the EU for everything. But certainly here in this country, there's this really strong tendency to blame external players for the problems we're encountering and the investment institutional investors are being demonized there's no doubt about that and unfortunately that is likely to result in policy as i see it and i I really passionately believe this institutional investment is not the problem in the irish property market and in fact um, institutional investment is key to the future and indeed the past delivery of housing supply, particularly apartment supply in this country. It makes the financing model work. So I think our policymakers who are being driven by populist politics should really be aware of the law of unintended consequences and what these policies might actually result in primarily impeding the future delivery of housing in a sustainable way. Um, I think a much more holistic view of the housing market needs to be taken. Um, It is a very complex thing. The problems in it are are the dysfunctional nature is not all down to one factor. It's down to a myriad of factors. But and you've got to recognize also that out there in the market, there is a need for social and affordable housing. There is a need for rental, a proper rental market. There is a requirement for people, owner occupiers who want to buy their own houses. So there's a whole load of different elements to the housing markets. It's not just all about social and affordable. It's not just all about rental. It's a combination of the different housing requirements that are out there. So the policies put in place need to I think, take cognizance of the bigger picture. Um, Interestingly, um, and I'm tearing my hair out at the moment, the bit I've left about the debate that's going on about housing and the the rubbish we're hearing coming out of the doll, particularly at the moment. And indeed, on social media, people are latching on to this as well, making these bold statements about the evil institutional investors um, and that they're mopping up everything that's happening in the market. I looked at 
a few of the biggest deliverers of private housing um, in the Dublin area over the last couple of years. Um, and I, I got the data and roughly 70 to 80 percent of the housing they're building is going to private buyers. And there's less than 25 to sort of 30 percent going to the, the, the rental market and particularly institutional investors. So the notion that institutional investors are coming in here and mopping up everything is simply wrong. But it does feed into this very populist, dangerous narrative as I see it. Um, I would like to think that our housing minister recognises what is going on. But the reality, of course, is in politics, um, the populist solution um, is the best way of assuring re-election. I am convinced that if these sorts of measures are actually implemented over the next few months, that come the next election, housing will be an even bigger issue that will determine the outcome of the election. And you will end up with a government that will make all sorts of stupid false promises about what they might or might not deliver. So uh, it's I'm kind of frustrated with the whole thing, I have to say, at the moment. I go back to the point I make about supply. I can sense your frustration. Indeed, indeed I share it. One thing I think I could say with, with reasonable certainty is that if you think that somehow or other banning or taxing foreign investors out of the Irish housing market is going to, going to solve your problem, then you are going to be sorely disappointed. But as you say, it might get you the headlines that you need to get the votes and that you will end up again, with the problem made worse, not just solved. But house prices are not the only thing that's going up at the moment, Jim, globally. We've had a lot of action this week from financial markets in particular in response to to US inflation data, which contains um, US house price inflation, amongst many other things that are going up from timber to cars to silicon chips to a whole range of commodities. There's a big commodity price inflation going on this week. And this inflation debate within which housing is nested, has had another twist with an inflation print in America of over 4% year-over-year inflation, which is quite something relative to anything that we've seen in recent years, in recent decades, actually. And if it's sustained, um, we've got a problem. Do you think it's going to be sustained? Uh, Well, interesting, uh, those numbers in the States certainly send out a lot of alarm bells. Um, Here in Ireland, yesterday, we got the April inflation numbers, a year-on-year increase of 1.1%, which I think is about the first positive number we've seen in the last 12 months. And if you look at the the contributions to that, housing, water, electricity, and gas, that category up by 3.6%, that is exclusively down to oil prices. And, you know, oil prices are 128% higher today than they were this time last year. So naturally, that is going to feed into electricity, gas and home heating costs. Health is up by 3%. I'm not sure what really is happening there, but I suspect it is related to the capacity pressures in the health service as a result of COVID. And then we have alcoholic beverages up by 2.2%. And that is down to legislation that was introduced by government about um, banning basically special offers on alcohol in off licenses and supermarkets. So does this inflation picture in Ireland worry me? No, it doesn't. I think there are technical reasons why we saw the sharp increase we saw in April. It does not signify an underlying inflation problem. 
in the United States, um, and indeed, we're starting to see it a little bit in Europe, there are all these problems with commodity prices and all of those various prices you mentioned feeding into the inflationary environment. And uh, you superimpose on top of that all of the fiscal stimulus, the pent-up demand that's coming back into the system. Um, and, and this is a global phenomenon rather than just a US phenomenon. You'd have to think that over the next 12 months or so, um, inflation is going to be a dominant theme and it's going to continue to exercise the minds of the markets. I have said before in an earlier podcast that I find it hard to believe that once we get through this distortionary period caused by COVID-19, that those sort of fundamental disinflationary forces that were in place prior to COVID will not re-emerge again. The only caveat to that really is, are we going to see a massive fiscal expansion all over the world of the type that's happening in the States at the moment. Uh, I don't think we are, because I, I, I cannot see fiscal profligacy becoming um, the norm in Europe, for example. So um, it, it's hard to say, but I, 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 as I envisage it at the moment, the next 12 months, inflation is going to be much higher everywhere than we've been accustomed to in recent years. But thereafter, I don't see a strong inflationary psychology getting built into the system. And of course, inflationary expectations feed into this narrative very, very strongly. And that's where at some stage in the next 12 months, particularly in the case of the Federal Reserve, they may have to intervene to sort of break this inflationary expectation psychology that could become ingrained in the system. Yeah, that's the way it can go wrong. And I must say, as you know, Jim, I've agreed with you about the temporary nature of all of this. But one thing that's happened already since we last spoke about it is that it's got much worse than I thought it was going to get. It's already slightly scarier than we thought likely. We thought that the last inflation number would come in at three point something. It's now four point something. These commodity prices, as I mentioned, things like timber, the oil price itself, copper prices, there are all sorts of things. Silver going up very, very rapidly, speaking to great supply shortages. As, as economies are, are opening up, the suppliers of these commodities and, and some of these manufactured goods um, are struggling. Nowhere is this in great, a greater example of this than um, US car prices, secondhand car prices in the States went through the roof last week for a whole host of reasons. The main one being that rental car companies got rid of their fleets during COVID. And as people are coming back in the States to renting cars, they're finding the car companies, that they don't have enough cars for people to rent out. And the other thing is that car companies themselves aren't producing enough cars, partly because of shutdowns through COVID, but also because they haven't got enough silicon chips. Another big shortage, which is likely to last for at least a year or two, is my understanding. So COVID is causing all sorts of economic problems, as, as well as health problems. And I think this one is, as you say, going to be something to which we need to keep a very close eye on. It's already worse than we thought it was going to be. And I think we're not going to know the answer about whether or not it's temporary for a year or two. But if it isn't temporary, or if it's a much, much bigger problem than we thought, that will loop back into our house price discussion, because what the central banks, particularly the US central bank, but others will have to do if there is an inflation problem, is hike interest rates uh, to a point I think that will cure some of your house price problem, probably in a way that you would not welcome. House prices might come down, but that might be because people can't afford them anymore. Well, I, I guess the other way it relates back to the housing market is the cost of house building here in Ireland. 
is going to increase, is, sorry, is increasing significantly at the moment because of raw material prices going up, particularly timber and so on. So that's going to, and, and of course, superimpose on top of that um, labor shortages in the construction sector. So the cost profile for developers is definitely deteriorating. So what do developers do about that? You know, it's very difficult to pass on those higher input costs in output prices uh, because of the, the, the housing issue here at the moment and the attitude towards house prices. So it is really going to complicate the delivery of the housing supply that we require here over the next couple of years. So it's uh, it's, 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 it's tricky and it's, it's all so interrelated and difficult. As you say, we really will have to watch this carefully. Chris, I couldn't allow us wrap up today without um, getting back to our COVID corner. How do you see the COVID situation at the moment? Um, suggestions in the Irish media this morning about a travel bubble between Ireland and the UK, for example. What do you think? Well, I would personally welcome that because I am well overdue a trip back to, to Ireland to see family and friends. So I, I would like that. And as somebody that has had COVID, has been doubly vaccinated, I consider myself to be a very low to near zero risk person to, to make that journey. I wouldn't represent a threat to you, Jim, particularly as you, you have also been vaccinated now as well. There's been some interesting data published by Public Health England um, in the last 24 hours, which is that the vaccine in Britain has saved, they reckon, 11,700 lives. Now, of course, a lot of that vaccine has been AstraZeneca, attracted an awful lot of controversy, an awful lot of bans around Europe and a lot of restrictions, not least in Ireland. So that's 11,700 people living that would otherwise have died and also 33,000 serious cases that would have ended up with people in hospital. So that's an awful lot of lives saved. And the other piece of evidence that was released is that the one dose strategy has cut COVID risk by 70%. So this is all emerging evidence that these vaccines, so far at least, always with that caveat, with Indian variants around and all those concerns, they are working. And that strike, the question that always arises when I see that this kind of data is why these these restrictions on AstraZeneca in particular, the one-dose strategy, why NIAC, I believe, is the agency in, in, in Ireland that we're waiting for some rulings associated with both Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. A, why is another agency having a say on whether these vaccines can be approved when the European Medicine Agency has already approved them? I don't understand the multiple agency thing, which all that does is introduce delay and the um, lack of paying attention to the emerging evidence about the one-dose strategy. So I think there are lots of questions that aren't being asked, but should be, particularly in an Irish context, but not just in an Irish context, uh, other countries are doing similar things and being even more restrictive when it comes to the AstraZeneca vaccine. So I welcome the, the travel bubble. And I know lots of people also who, who will. The, the, the fact that we might be able to travel between Britain and Ireland, I think, is an unambiguously good thing. And I don't think that particularly for people like me, if they just insist on some kind of testing or vaccination certificate, great, I can produce both. Let's go for it. Yes, indeed. Uh, absolutely. That There is, a, I think, a very positive sense in this country this week. Uh, we've seen a further gradual reopening. Uh, the vaccine delivery programme is definitely moving very much in the right direction after a very faltering start. So lots of reasons for optimism in relation to 
the coming months with the obvious caveat about the variants um, and so on. So, Chris, thanks very much for another very interesting discussion. Many topics that we will have to revisit, I have no doubt, over the coming months. Thank you. Cheers, Jim. Thanks. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. We aim to provide an independent take on economics, politics, and anything else that takes our fancy. Thank you very much for listening, and we hope to have you on board again very soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.